Greetings and welcome, Reggae Uprising podcast family, to another episode. This podcast is all about connecting people of the diaspora through wisdom, inspiration, overstanding, all set against the soundtrack of sweet reggae music. Now, my regular listeners will already know, normally what happens is I have a different guest for every episode, for every week. And um, obviously the episodes are released every Wednesday. Um, The only exception to this so far has been when COVID-19 came in and a lot of people had a lot of worries and anxiety and a lot of questions to do with finances. Um, Hence why Marisha Stevenson's financial special was two parts because we had a lot of things to cover. Um, I'm going to have another exception to this rule again today as we're going to have a two part. Um, So the first part, obviously, you're listening to now and you need to listen out for the second part which is going to come out next Wednesday. All will become clear as to why this is a two-part special. Now, if you or someone you know would like to feature on an upcoming episode, please get in touch via any of my social media. So that's Facebook, Daniil Music, Instagram, Daniil Music, or Twitter, Daniil Music, where you can also check out my weekly videos, Reggae Uprising every Monday and High Vibes Friday every Friday. I will also leave those links in the description and look forward to hearing from you. Right, let's get started with today's guest first selection. I ask all of my guests to choose seven reggae songs that are either inspirational, empowering or hold some special memory. So today's guest first selection is Black Slavery Days. is a registered nurse, theatre scrub nurse, pioneered the role of first assistant to the surgeon and as a result the first surgical care practitioner in the Birmingham area. She also won a scholarship to go to a nurses training college in Malawi. 
As well as all of this, she is director of charity Sick Be Nourished, who provide training in the use of basic resources and have sent medical resources to 18 different countries across Africa, the Caribbean and beyond. Their mantra is to let the hungry be fed, the naked clothed, the sick nourished, aged and protected and the infants cared for. I would like to welcome Empress Zeditu. Greetings and welcome. Greetings. Greetings um, to the community. Greetings to yourself. Thank you for inviting me onto your program. It is such an honor to be able to speak. Um, I'm so um, honored. I bow humbly to you and to all the listeners today. My name is Empress Zaditu. I'm a elder within the Rastafari community based here in Hansworth. And yeah, it's it's been a long trod, but I give thanks for communication. Well, more love to you for, for taking the time to be here with us today and share your wisdom. I really, really do appreciate that. In terms of, um, and speaking of wisdom, what was the reason for that first selection? Right. Black slavery days. Well, you know, back in those days when, as, you know, knowledge and culture began to present itself back in the early 70s, 80s, as a young Rasta woman, we were seeking, searching for knowledge and understanding. Where did we come from? How did we get here? Why are we here? What is our heritage? And music like Black Slavery Days was one of those musics that really caused debate, caused me to look into myself and to look back at where in Africa we really come from and what slavery was about. So yeah, it was quite a significant track for me at the time. Okay. Um, can I ask you, as I ask all of my guests, what your heritage is? I'm of African heritage, first and foremost. My parentage is of Jamaica. So we're from the, the island of Jamaica. Um, I was born here in the UK. My mother came over when she was pregnant from several years ago and worked in the National Health Service. My father worked as a labourer. And basically, between them, you know, there was of the Windrush generation, so, you know, they worked hard to build up what we know as Britain today. So a lot of us in, during those times were seeking, seeking for where we actually come from and where we need to go, because we always knew Africa was the homeland. So, you know, that was part of my heritage, I suppose. Africa is where we come from initially. Um, so in your household, was your history talked about? You know, when you're talking about Africa and going back home, we, was that talked about in your household? And, you know, um, whether it be like your direct descendants or black history in general? Well, in my household, um, when I was younger, obviously a lot of the history that we were being taught was Jamaican history, you know, looking at our grandparents and some of the heritage that, you know, farming and that type of history where where the family actually um, comes from in Jamaica and, and the types of things that we were doing. I think the spark to look into 
own self as an African came from my own personal journey and my own personal experiences where I wanted to know where I come from, which if you look at a lot of um, families in the West Indies, some families are, are, are very, um, what's the word, they don't look at Africa so much as being their heritage. It stops, it begins with Jamaica. But we all know that traditionally, Jamaicans came in from, from the African continent. You only have to look at the Maroons living in the hill, the runaway slaves that would not sit and take the abuses from the, the early colonialists at the time. Hence the reason why Black Slavery Days is such a, a, a strong knowledge base for I at that time, at that particular moment in time. So was there something that triggered you in, in your journey towards, you know, making a wider search for your, your heritage and your history? Yes. You know, I come from a large family. There was quite a few of us and, you know, parents working day and night to try and send us to school and so on. I did pretty well in school. But one of the most um, important times in my life that I suppose created this spirit within me was an opportunity that was presented when um, Harambe Bookshop, Harambe Organization, they were doing some sponsors. And I was sponsored to actually visit Ghana during 1977. That, for me, was the turning point because I was on the continent of Africa. It was such an experience. And that is why I'm, I am who I am today, constantly looking for home the homeland and I've not stopped going to Africa since then so what would I, this is a hard question to kind of zone it in but um what would you say was the you know the the pivotal things that happened to you or experiences that you had when you went to Ghana that you know sparked so much inspiration in you to keep oh, wow. on that journey well, the inspiration I'm glad you've asked that question I was so not prepared for Africa and this is what a lot of us that are born on the diaspora need to be aware of. You know, first of all, um, wearing clothes that were totally inappropriate. I left England in some tweed skirt and some really thick, heavy clothes. And as soon as I landed on the continent, it was apparent to me that no, no. Lack of um, my tongue, looking at the beautiful sky and coming into one with nature, being at harmony with the sea, the elements, feeling the, the sand and the red soil on my feet. One of the most important things that really had an impact was meeting my African brothers and sisters. When I asked them their names and they're telling me their name is Christine or Alfred and things like that, I realized that, no, this is deep. Because I'm going in the heart of Africa in a village in Ghana, and they're telling me their name is um, these uh, English names which didn't seem a heritage name. And when you ask questions of one, they will tell you their African name. So automatically from there, I knew there was something that we, we had to do. As an African continent, there is something detrimentally wrong just within that. So it started my journey into looking into colonialism, and why we face slavery, traditional African heritage before colonialism. What were we as a people doing before 
the colonial regime came upon the continent? What was our medicine like? What food was we eating? What about our traditional clothing? So that was my journey, and it started, that was the, 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 the starting point of, of my particular journey that is unending. So um, we're going to explore um, your journey through Africa more later on in the interview. But just for now, I just want to go back to your childhood for a little bit longer. Um, I know you're going to have great stuff to tell us about your journey through Africa and all the um, all the inspirational works that you've been doing. Um, but for now, I want to know a little bit more about your childhood, like I said. So growing up, do you feel that there are any lies that were told to you like or things that you believe to be true and then when you got a little bit older you realized oh my gosh that that really isn't true whether the, these things be you were conscious of these things or they were subliminal things that were kind of put into your right. psyche and you didn't realize that's a, a very very good question um you know growing up in a, in a large family as as i did we were quite insular we didn't communicate much um um you know mum and dad they're christians which sort of took everything as it as it as it was told to us and one of the things that really did stand out for me was being told that as a black man or a black woman you're not capable you're not capable to achieve uh, the similar similar educational standards etc as say another nation yeah we are seen as the underdogs. We we don't achieve. We are um, a lot of. There was a lot of negative press. We were targeted, stop and search, and these types of things made me look into what is life about. What what? Why are we taught in school, for example, the history of? Um, the Englishman and, and Western world, when I am of African origin, what about my particular history? Where is my ancestral knowledge? What is my culture? Yeah? Mm. And, and these types of things. So going to school and, and facing racism in, in certain aspects made you look at what you were being told initially in schools, in church, and, and, and gave me, I had a question in mind, so it gave me the opportunities to look deeper into, again, what I've said, my ancestry. And, um, you know, black people have <laughs> one of the highest, most ancient historical knowledge bases of all time. I did not realize we were inventors of the traffic lights, for example. I did not realize black people or black person invented the light bulb. So these things, subliminally, I'm being told black people cannot achieve, black people don't have the capacity, black people are seen as animals in some instances, black people were being put in zoos and being treated like uh, monkeys in a, in a cage to be laughed at. So these are the lies that we have been told. We have been subjugated and a lot of our history is hidden. And ha 
had that history been given to us, then many of us now would be a lot more confident in our skin as black people, in the knowledge that we are a great, great nation. And I continue to learn daily some of the major uh, contributions, some of the major developments, some of the major inventions that we as black people have actually put on this planet. You only have to look at the, the, the pyramids and look at all some of the things that we as black people have actually built with skills that is elusive to mankind even now. Going to school, I learned, um, I was very interested in biology and, and those types of things, hence the reason why I became, um, went into the medical profession and nursing and so on. But when you look at history and look in the literature, um, a lot of medical procedures that I thought was created or initiated within the Western world, I have found that initially a lot of it has actually been done before thousands of years ago. For example, cesarean sections. Are you aware that cesarean sections have been carried out for centuries in the village in uh, Uganda? A lot of uh, surgical instrumentation was developed, being used on black people. Uh, in, for example, uh, women being uh, examined without anesthesia to dull the pain. So many things that we as black people have contributed to this world that is it's uh, sub actually held down, we don't know about these things. These are things that we need to be teaching our children, our youth, our females, our males, to develop their own intuitive knowledge base that is deep seated within them. We are the kings and the queens, we are the orig original peoples to inhabit the earth. And until we can recognize this, then we will constantly be in this state of subjugation. Wow. Wow. There's a, there's so much to think on in what you, you just said um, and so much knowledge that you shared. But um, for now, I just want to move on, um, just for now, um, is move on to your next selection. Because I know we've got so much to talk about. I'm just trying to squeeze the music in where we can. Um, <laughs> so your next selection is Jaja Give Us life to live the wailing souls why did you pick this one because in this life that we are living now there is no beginning to life and there's no end because the spirit cannot die the spirit don't have no beginning and the spirit have no ending so when jaja give us life to live so let us live we need to live according to the laws laid down by the Most High Himself that will promote life. Life cannot die. So we need to give thanks for that life. 
give thanks to the elements. And if we live clean, we live good, we live um, in these ways, then we will have a long and fruitful life. So that is one of the reasons I, I chose Jaja Kibos life to live. During those times, you know, we faced in the 70s and 80s again, there was a lot of um, black and black killing, as they say, um, a lot of tribulation within our communities. You know, um, Jaja give us life to live, so, so let, let us live. Right, here we go with Jaja, give us life, the wailing songs.
you know, what made you actually get into nursing? Right. I got into nursing. Um, my ancient heritage is that I'm a healer. I know I was formerly um, of a Sangoma, which is an African healer. So that, that spirit of healing has always dwelt within and around. My mother was a nurse. And so many of the sister children went into nursing. Some of the girls went in, into nursing. Now, my initial impetus started because um, I have a daughter who, um, she wasn't born that way, but she uh, sustained a, a severe illness when she was about three months. Um, and it, it has caused some brain damage. So I wanted to find out more about this condition. And by studying about the human structure of the body, that would give I the knowledge to be able to unravel within myself what happened and to see if this could be prevented from happening to anyone else. So going into nursing was a vehicle to learning about um, the physical anatomy and the workings and obviously to look and see how sicknesses and diseases are, are diagnosed. So that was one of my major impetuses. So, um, obviously my mother being a nurse as well was a, another great influence. So um, she was there. I really enjoy looking into the workings of this body here because if you look at the structure we are like a tree that is planted by the rivers of water. The same way the tree is watered by the elements and the stone is the same way with the structure. So, you know, that I won't go too much into it, but that is some of the reasoning around why I became a nurse. You know, because it, it sort of set the foundation for what I, I ultimately want to do. Ultimately, I want to look into traditional African healing methods. Okay, and how did you come to create such a pioneering role um, in being, you know, the first assistant to surgeon, followed by becoming the first surgical care practitioner? How did that come about? Well, things seem to happen to me in life all the time. I've always said this. Um, I was trained as a as scrub nurse initially in theatres, which sort of gives you the skills to um, be able to provide surgical assistance, surgical, uh, as a scrub nurse, you, you're assisting the surgeon to carry out procedures, but you're given training in all the different areas, ear, nose and throat, orthopedics, urology, um, gynecology, general surgery, etc., which gives you a, a rounded view of the entire body and how they treat certain um conditions. Um, I was given the opportunity to uh, access a particular course. This course was put out to everyone within the department, but uh, ironically, I was the only one that applied for the course, and I was taken up and trained by surgeons to carry out minor surgical procedures to assist with bowel surgery and all these other um, surgical procedures. I was able to do peg insertions. For ones who don't know what that is, peg insertion is an alternative feed. So if someone can't swallow, for example, they still need to get nutrition 
then it can be introduced via um, gastrectomy through the abdomen and, and so on. Um, I was um, sent on to this course. The course then gave me all these skills, which in those days, nurses were not doing those roles. Um, the National Health Service at that time had a shortage of junior doctors, so they had an idea to train senior staff nurses or senior nurses to become and take on the roles ordinarily carried out by doctors. So that's how my role came about. I was sent off for training and then I was um, placed with a surgical firm. So you had the consultant, you had the registrar, the surgical house officer, house officer, and then you have I, a surgical practitioner, as part of that surgical team. So I was carrying a bleep, I was teaching junior doctors, um, carrying out surgical procedures. And basically, I wanted to get all that knowledge. I give thanks for the, to the Most High because His Majesty said, Yosilasi said, them and those who can, who have the ability to learn, should do so for the betterment of their nation. It, ha it was my full intention to gather as much skills as I can so I can go home and set up something that will be, enable me to help not only myself and my community, but my people in general. Okay, speaking of which, what, what would you say the difference is that you find between the med medical care in the UK and that of Malawi? But dif the difference is very stark. And having travelled across not only Malawi, Zimbabwe, and visited um, you know, Ethiopia and visited some of the clinics and the hospital, the greatest difference that you can see physically with your eye is the difference in the amount of resources that um, you know, the West has resources, the law, well-equipped theatres, stock, you know, we have nails for, uh, you know, um, orthopaedic procedures. Uh, we'll have a selection of nails here, whereas in, in, in Africa, you, you're not going to, to find that. Equally so, equally so um, in Jamaica, visiting hospitals in Jamaica, you'll find there's a different tier of medical provision. Again, it's all based on the country's GDP. And again, you find in Africa, 80% of the population are using traditional medicines simply because that is what is and was and always has been done. Uh, in Africa, you have to find money to be able to provide, you, um, you know, buy medicines. Right now, we're trying to um, assist ones financially because they need certain care. It's not so readily available. You know, you'll have one CT scan, for example, for the entire village, whereas in, in, in the UK, you know, you can get a CT scan practically in every town. So these are some of the differences. So would you say that um, in Africa they're moving away from the traditional medicines and going more into Western medicine? Is there, you know, is there a fight yeah, between the two of them or what's the status on that? There is that drive. I mean, there, there is that drive. I mean, most hospitals on the continent now are on the same model as those um, or striving to achieve the same level of provision or provide services equal to what is here in the West. But lack of resources dictate that they are unable 
to, to do so. So, um, for example, Uganda, you've got the UK stroke Ugandan Health Alliance, which is a partnership that is currently running now. We've got frequent exchanges between um, National Health Service uh, organizations going into the continent of Uganda, going into universities, training, carrying out workshops, introducing services, introducing medicines, etc. So yes, uh, the, our hospitals are becoming more westernized. There's also a drive to um, institutionalize our traditional medicines and uh, some of our healers are, are having to um, ensure that their products are safe for use and that they've been tested. So there is a drive to sort of um, look at traditional medicines in a way that's saying they're not as equivalent to Western medicine. But on the other hand, again, traditional medicines in another part of Africa have been proven to be so effective that they have now become part and parcel of services being delivered within the hospital setting. So, but all, uh, all in all, I would say uh, traditional medicine is still being practiced uh, by the majority of the population on the African continent. Do you fear that, um, you know, these traditions will be lost with and overtaken by the Western this medications? Is my, this is the fear. I mean, now visited South Africa um, about two years ago and they have a, an organization um, um, for the Traditional Healing Association, I think it's called. Uh, and again, they have to have license to practice now. And so, yes, it is a fear. And this is why it is very important that we as nation, as a, you know, we need to look at our traditional African heritage before colonialism. We need to look and reinvest in our elders. We need to listen to them. We need to document our evidences. Because every nation has got their own. Only the black nation, we have to get our food, our finances, our health care from others. And we are a rich nation, pooled with, we got so much skills. Himotep, the father of medicine. Himotep, during his time, was taking blood samples, was checking sputum, was checking urine. And this is going way back into the Egyptian dynasty. Some of these books and these um, scrolls that they have taken and preserved in their libraries will tell you that history. We need to go back to those times when black man can reinvigorate himself with the knowledge that he has. We need to re-empower ourselves. That ancestral knowledge is still there. We need to embrace it. So in terms of those traditional herbs, whether they be in the UK, Africa, Jamaica, can you, you know, talk about a few that... Um, that you have some experience with of um, relieving people's symptoms and healing people? Well, we use a lot of um, herbs, you know, that we brought over from uh, Caribbean 
heritage or African heritage. You know, ginger, for example, if you've got stomach pain, it can relieve wind. Um, it's very good for, for pain. Um, and it, 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 it leaves what they call flatulence. And if you've got headaches, sometimes that can help. Clove, if you've got toothache, clove's quite good. You can put the insert inside the tooth and it will help to numb away the pain. One of the most potent antibiotics is garlic. You'd be surprised what garlic can do. Again, if you've got toothache, a piece of garlic um, inside the tooth. Eating garlic if you've got a cold or a sore throat. The properties of garlic are something that we, we you need to research and do. Some of these herbs and spices, we've got them in our day-to-day home, homes in our gardens. Dandelion, for example, that little yellow flower that's growing abundantly in the garden at times. It's a, a very, very good herb. Now, um, there are a lot of literature out there in terms of, um, you know, the different plants. I have one here, for example, medicinal plants of East Africa. The earth is a lot of the fullness thereof, but there are herbs and spices and different trees and roots, shrubs and barks on the entire continent of the world itself. So, you know, there's herbs here in the UK, there's herbs in the West, there's spices, there's fruits, certain things grow in its due season and its time. Across Africa, of course, you have the sunshine and the red earth, highly nutritious conditions for some of these healing plants. You know, there's so many species that we can use to make tinctures, that we can chew, that we can use as steam heat inhalation and use as steam baths. We can make liniments and, you know, enemas and, and things that we can and use to treat ourselves at home. Obviously, bearing in mind, we need to know and have the, the appropriate training and know what it is that but. Some of these things have been tried and tested and, again, being able to go in your garden and plant a herb is the beginning of knowing the power and the beauty of plants. We give out carbon dioxide, the trees give out oxygen, which is what we need. There's a synergy there, so you need to boost your immune system by utilizing that which the Most High has given unto us as gifts, fruits and vegetables. You're so right. And it is that simple. Like we say some phrases and I feel like we don't listen or certain people don't listen to the words actually saying food is medicine. So if you if you had a, for example you had a car if you're gonna put rubbish in the car it's not gonna run properly it's really that exactly. simple and that basic, um but you did exactly. mention a, a book what was who was the author of the book so people can go look that book up. Right, this book is called The Medicinal Plants of East Africa and it's written by uh, Najma Darani. Okay. And Abi Yenisui. Um. It's an illustrated guide, um, and they are plant and environmental ecology. Again, these are Ethiopians 
So the plants endemic here, which are being covered here, are telling us about all the medicinal properties of even onions, garlic, as I've discussed, and it's showing you how to utilize those to its benefit. Aloe vera, you know, many of us have got aloe vera growing in our houses. Aloe vera is a very good um, antibiotic again. It's very good for healing, burns, and it's also good for your hair. Wow, we've got so much more to talk about, but I need to get on to your next um, selection. Um, we're going to talk about sick being nourished in just a second, but I want to talk about your next selection, which is My Mission is Impossible, the Viceroy's. Why did you pick this selection? Right, this track, I used to love this track because my mission is impossible. This is what is, we, we all think it's impossible to achieve. We all think it's impossible to overcome certain um, you know, things that are happening to us as a people. I mean, what's going on now? But nothing is impossible, and that is the message that was coming out from the voice, viceroys. My missions are possible. That is the ultimate message that comes from, and that was such a strong, powerful message for me at the time, which I could identify with, yeah? Because if we remain complacent at all times, we don't give ourselves a voice, we do not push that boundary, we do not create waves, then we're always going to be in this situation, in this oppressive state where we don't have our own. And in order for us to have our own, we need to have that assurance in ourselves that we can achieve. So that was a very powerful message uh, taken from the vice here we go with my mission is impossible with viceroys. Mission 
a little bit more about how Sick Be Nourished came about, about your works that you've done in the community to benefit our people? Right, the Sick Be Nourished project came about some years ago. First of all, you know, the Sick Be Nourished project is not just about me. There are several people within the team. You know, we have, over the years, uh, quite a few ones that have been a part of this. So it's a team, so none of this work would have been achieved with just me, myself, and I, you know, have Sister Makida, Sister Chipo, Sister Jem, Rastembalani, Ras I, Kofi, Lengo, Ras Twinji, the list goes on. But these are our core members, Sister Aishal, you know, that have helped to formulate uh, Sigmund Nourish to what it is now. How it came about? Right, I am uh, working as a, a scrub nurse initially as I was uh, in the NHS. I was privy to, I was able to see with my own eyes um, a lot of waste on a daily basis of resources that, you know, obviously if you're um, in a theatre environment using aseptic technique, everything has to be clean, everything has to be, you know, free of germs, free of bacteria, etc., because you're introducing it into someone. So if someone uh, passes 
the scrub nurse a swab, a packet of swabs, and it fell on the floor, then that packet is going to be discarded in the bin. Bear it in mind, it's not even open yet. Not only that, you find within the increasing of technologies and so forth within the NHS and across the, you know, the economics of society generally, we move on in terms of equipment, in terms of supplies, etc. The NHS also looking for uh, cheaper options, you know, to, for example, they get the hot gloves and they see a better option and it's cheaper, they're going to go for the better option. So over time you'll find there's boxes of gloves being thrown away. Either they're out of date or they're no longer fit for purpose. There's swabs, range of instruments and swabs and dressings and bandages, etc. that is constantly being thrown away. So I thought, no, um, way back as a, a scrub nurse, I started to collect some of these things and was always giving things out to not only individuals, but if I knew someone was flying to Jamaica or to some part in Africa, then I'd give them some gloves or give them some bandages. So it started from there. How the Sick Benoist project itself came about was um, there was a brother who was quite ill um, in the hospital and he needed advice. Because of my training, I'm, I was able to provide some of the advice about around the condition and so on. And I find other people coming to me. So um, it created, the, the it, 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 to me, there was a gap. Something needed to be filled here. That, you know, we need to know about diabetes. Diabetes is affecting our communities 10 times more than, you know, other communities, for example. You know, there's other ailments that, that are affecting us. You know, eczema, asthma, um, sickle cell anemia, etc. Um, furthermore, because I got the training surgically, I was able to explain what a surgical procedure was going to entail, what is involved, what the recovery like, etc. And so, but also it highlighted the need that existed within our communities. For example, someone might be in a hospital way over in Queen Elizabeth, and they don't have anyone to take close to them. They might need pajamas, might need toothpaste, they might need certain supplies. And it was because of these issues why we initially came to came up with the idea of Sick Be Nourish Project. The Sick Be Nourish Project is based on the Ethiopian creed, which within the creed it does actually state that we should let the hungry be fed, the naked clothed, our sick be nourished, our aged protected, and the infants cared for. When you look at those um, oceans, that is our total care system, if you look at it. Because let this uh, hungry be fed, that's looking at our agriculture, our farming, our food, actives, all, it encompasses all of those things. Let the, the uh, naked be clothed. Manufacturing, we need to be making and wearing our own clothes, shoes, manufacturing having our own industry. Let the sick be nourished. You know, we need to look at our traditional medicine. We need to look at prevention. We need to look at providing our people with the knowledge they need to make valid decisions about their care and so on. And we need to look at our traditional um, foods, our diet, our, you know, our stress levels, all of those things that make for health a healthy lifestyle. The 
aged be protected once a man, twice a child, we are all going to get into an aged uh, state at some point in life. We need to help our youth. Furthermore, we can learn so much from the elders because wisdom comes with age. And then we have the youth, infants, must be cared for because there we have the man and woman of tomorrow. We need to and, and embrace them, we need to pass the button onto them, we need to empower them. These are our future kings, queens, empresses, and until we realize that we have this power within us, yeah, then we're never going to achieve. So we have to impart this knowledge onto our coming generation and set that path for them. So, you know, Sikbi Norish came about um, again even stronger when I visited Ethiopia. We actually have some land in Ethiopia because we, you know, intend to repatriate. And one of uh, the group of sisters, we came together, Uriah, Universal Rastafari Improvement Association. We came together some years ago and we kept um, community um, meetings. We provided um, workshops for the children. We uh, we're working across Africa and we purchased this land in Ethiopia. One of our sisters decided to go home. She went with her children. Uh, I'm not going to go in too long. This is quite a long and sad tale. But basically, she went with her children. She um, became pregnant and she was living in the Shashamani region. The, her husband had lost a, a wife previously because there's a high child mortality and mortality rate, you know, pregnancies where, you know, women are dying simply from having a child due to lack of resources. And basically, I happened to be there when she um, was giving birth to the child and unfortunately she lost her life and I was sent home with not only the baby, which she had, her first son, but they sent me home with the, the body as well, back to the rented accommodation. I'd only been there five days. So I had to arrange um, funeral, etc. And then I suddenly had four children. So it was quite a traumatic experience. And I vowed that this should not happen to anyone that is repatriating home to the motherland. So again, it highlighted the need for us as people to look at our services, to look at our needs, and we need to work together to enhance and develop what it is we need to enhance our lives on the continent. So that's how uh, Sigby Norwich actually came about. I came back to the UK, went to work, and um, because of what happened, they sent me home. I'm just putting the story really short. But from that, um, again, obviously, because of the work I do, setting up the role as the first assistant, I was the first one. They were constantly doing um, articles about me and the role uh, and so on. So they actually did an article relating to what took place in, in Ethiopia. I had photographs of the clinic um, in Shashamani, which lacks basic facilities. My sister had to leave Shashamani and go to a private hospital in Addis Ababa to have her child and she still lost her life. 
why is this and there's other females that are losing their lives today so these are things collectively um, that we need to, to to do something about and this was one of my great reasons again for um, setting up this, this sick binarish project Unfortunately, that's all we have time for for today's episode. That was part one of this beautiful, beautiful special. Uh, Make sure you tune back in next Wednesday for part two, as I feel that there's so much wisdom, knowledge and overstanding to be shared. Enjoy the rest of your week. As always, blessed love.